Thank you for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. In this episode, we will cover Fall Gelb and the opening days of the Battle for France. I'm sorry I've been on hiatus for so long, but I've been pretty busy lately. First, I was traveling on holiday for a couple of weeks, and then I had to move. But now I'm finally settled and have a new episode ready for you. I'm also in between jobs right now, so hopefully I'll be able to make it up to all of you who waited so patiently by being able to push out new episodes on a more frequent basis. At least until I get a new job and have to move again. Anyway, let's begin Episode 5, Polish the Shield, Neglect the Sword. and definitely there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Before Hitler made his fateful move to take Denmark and Norway in one fell swoop, he'd been prepared to plunge his men deep into France. At the outset of 1940, there were already two million men staring across the western frontier, and had it not been for one fateful incident, the fall of France may have come far sooner, or perhaps not at all. On January 10, 1940, Major Helmut Reinberger was to carry the Luftwaffe's secret invasion plans from Berlin to Cologne, but he missed the train. What small inconvenience caused him to be late has been lost to history, but one must wonder what seemingly insignificant events altered the fate of Europe. Had he simply forgotten something, his watch perhaps, that Wednesday morning? Or maybe he tripped in a puddle and had to change his pants? Regardless, whatever led to his tardiness, it forced him to make other arrangements to reach Cologne. Being a Luftwaffe officer, he knew many pilots and so found his friend, Major Eric Hahnemann, and asked him if he would fly him to his destination. Despite prohibitions against carrying classified information in flight, the two departed together on that cold and foggy January morning. They set out in a Messerschmitt 108, though Major Hohnmann had never actually flown an ME 108 before. Major Reinberger didn't know this and simply trusted his friend to get him there. Well, fairly early into their flight, the crowd grew thick, so Major Hohnmann dropped altitude to get below the cloud cover and navigate by dead reckoning, figuring he could just follow the river. When he found the river, it was too narrow to be the mighty Rhine, though. So where was he? Fumbling with his instrumentation, Major Hunman accidentally cut the fuel supply, sending his plane careening toward the ground. Already so low, he had no time to restart his engine. Hurtling toward the ground, Major Hohnman managed to maneuver between the trees, shearing off both wings. Upon crash landing, the Majors crawled out of the aircraft and were approached by a peasant yelling in French. With what little French they had between them, they came to realize they were in Belgium, so hurried to find the planes and burn them. The Belgian army had seen their plane go down, though, and soon soldiers were arriving. 
They were captured and taken to a small HQ, where Major Weinberger grabbed the papers and threw them into a stove. A quick-thinking officer reached his hand into the brassiere and snatched out the plans just in time to save them. Counterintuitively, the Belgians did not notify the French and British at once. Instead, they sat on the plans for days. They had seen how ineffectual the Allies had been in curbing Germany's ambitions for the last several years, and were in no hurry to antagonize Hitler. Unlike his father, the warrior king who had lived and eaten in the trenches with his soldiers in World War I, King Leopold III thought neutrality a better option. He believed a close relationship with the Allies would only give Hitler greater cause to invade. Queen Wilhelmia of the Netherlands had a similar attitude. The Netherlands had remained neutral and untouched in the First World War, and so she intended to do the same to avoid Germany's wrath the second time around. Of course, they had both horribly misjudged Hitler's intentions. Though it must be said that both Belgium and the Netherlands took the threat of invasion more seriously than their French and English counterparts. They kept more men under arms per capita and invested in defensive works. The Dutch planned to release all the levies and turn their country into a massive series of moats, not counting on airborne troops to bypass their aquatic safeguards. With his plans in enemy hands, Hitler had to delay and reassess his strategy. This fateful delay ultimately led to a newer, bolder plan being adopted, one forwarded by Lieutenant General Erich von Manstein. Rather than wheel through Belgium, he proposed an attack through the dense Ardennes forest in southeastern Belgium. Until that moment, planners on all sides had written off the Ardennes as impassable. The forest was too thick and the roads too narrow, they thought. To Manstein, though, this offered the perfect place to move troops and tanks without being spotted. Massive armored columns could roll through without having to worry about aircraft reporting their positions. From an operational standpoint, a drive through the Ardennes, combined with a feint in the north toward Holland, would allow the German army to attack the French in its flank as it rushed north to defend the Low Countries. Manstein had to prove his plan would work, though. He had participated in war games in which he demonstrated thoroughly that an armored drive in the south could be effective when combined with a northern feint. This played into Hitler's preconceived notion that a southern strike may be the better option and Monstein's plan was adopted by the German army as Plan Yellow, or Fall Gelb. This would be the true test of Blitzkrieg, a massive, coordinated assault against a large and powerful army with prepared defenses. It would combine airborne, armored, infantry, and close air support in a manner not yet seen. Yes, the Polish invasion was a proof of concept, but the westward invasion would be the real test. Meanwhile, as the Germans adopted an aggressive, combined arms offensive, the French sat and polished the shield while allowing the sword to rust. The Maginot Line was that shield, a $500 million shield in 1940 terms. After having lost countless men in the brave but futile offensives in the First World War, the French had come now to regard the defense as the stronger position. They had managed to halt the Germans and grind them down in the final years of the Great War, and perhaps had overlearned their lesson, for their entire military doctrine was defined by it. The Maginot Line became the absolute embodiment of that defensive attitude. The Maginot Line, so named for the defense minister, André Maginot, who had begun its construction in the 1920s, was a World War I trench taken to the extreme. Rather than a continuous line of trenches, it was a series of nearly impregnable, indestructible fortresses. They contained everything necessary to prosecute a war. Barracks, 
kitchens, fuel and ammunition depots, cisterns, and septic tanks. Each blockhouse could have six stories underground and was topped by a two-story dome of concrete impenetrable by any existing weapon. All of this military infrastructure was oriented eastward. The guns could only traverse enough to provide interlocking and supporting fire on one another. And it stretched from Switzerland to just south of the Ardennes Forest, where the Germans were expected to attack. The rest of the army was expected to maneuver through Belgium. The French army was not a maneuver force in 1940, though. Though it had 800,000 men on active service, and 5 million more in the reserves, it was in no way on a war footing. The command and control system was archaic, hardly having changed in 20 years, and was made worse by unclear chains of command. Commanders were jealous of their units, but also sometimes superseded by the various commands above them, creating a chaotic and inefficient command climate. Compounding problems of leadership were problems of readiness and morale. The army was a hollow shell of the proud force it had been in 1914. The men were demoralized and unprepared, and General Gamelin seemed hell-bent on retarding modernization. When Charles de Gaulle published Toward a Professional Army in 1933, Gamelin detested it. He still believed in the power of large infantry formations, supported by massive artillery bombardments, and to supply these, the army required conscripts. De Gaulle's proposal would require a smaller, more professional, more mobile force, the antithesis of what Gamelin believed would win a defensive war. Despite all of this, France entered 1940 with a high degree of confidence. They had millions of men theoretically ready to fight, and they had the Maginot Line with its massive guns pointed toward Germany, just waiting for the Bosch to come into their sights. They had very little insight into just how destructive the coming onslaught would be. They would soon learn, however. In the pre-dawn haze of May 10, 1940, German paratroopers silently descended into Holland. It was cool, and dew clung to the blades of grass as light mist of early morning fog drifted over the landscape. The German soldiers, some dressed in Allied uniforms and Dutch police uniforms, silently approached the Dutch guards, whose job it was to throw the levers and flood the countryside. Curious as to how policemen had managed to arrest German prisoners, the Dutchmen approached, excited to find some break from their boredom. When they were only paces away, the policemen and their prisoners revealed their weapons and mowed down the guards. Thus the bridge at Gennep was captured, as was much of the frontier. With the locks, bridges, airfields, and canals seized, the Dutch were powerless to stop the German armored divisions. This was the first instance of paratroopers being utilized in their proper function, to capture strategic points behind enemy lines, on an operational scale. And the Dutch were very much unprepared for them. A mere 4,000 German parachutists managed to topple the Kingdom of the Netherlands while suffering only 180 casualties. Of course, they were assisted by a surplus of close air support, which prevented the Dutch from being able to mount any kind of effective counteroffensive, and essentially paralyzed the country. By May 15th, the fighting was essentially over, and on May 17th, the occupation officially began. Queen Wilhelmia did manage to escape and establish a government in exile, but the war was over for the Dutch, and soon their colonies in Asia would fall to the Japanese. Next, Belgium would come under assault and once again the Fallschirmjäger would be instrumental in dislodging the defenders. But what the westward advance also illustrated, in remarkable clarity, was the tactical and strategic brilliance of German military thinkers of the era. 
In an age when the French could hardly organize an army 20 years outdated, the German military was engaged in truly revolutionary thinking. Sure, other nations had brilliant men like de Gaulle, Patton, and Montgomery, who saw the future of mechanized warfare. The Germans were the only ones to implement those ideas by 1939. At risk of being labeled a wearaboo, or Nazi apologist, it must be said that the German military in the first half of the 20th century was probably one of the greatest armed forces to ever march over the face of the earth. Man to man, they were probably equally as courageous as any other soldier, but in terms of organization, tactical and strategic initiative, discipline, and ability to reorganize and adapt, they could give anyone a run for their money. In 1939, the Wehrmacht were the heirs of the Prussian army and the professionalization of the late 19th century, and the highly capable but defeated army of the Kaiser. They were an army that had learned not only from their victories, but, more importantly, from their defeats. For anyone who has ever served in or around a large, modern military, it is well known how difficult it can be to reform. Militaries are vast bureaucracies that dislike change, so it is truly a great feat that the Wehrmacht was able to adopt such sweeping changes in such a short time. Of course, its limited size and emasculated leadership probably contributed to its ability to adapt. Unlike the French army, which was severely bloated and swelled with hubris from the victory in the Great War. Generals Heinz Guderian and Karl Student were two officers who embodied this impressive German military tradition and would demonstrate their brilliance in the opening moves of the invasion of Belgium. The Belgians were prepared for war. Along the Albert Canal, they had constructed the Aben MIL fortress. Nearly impenetrable by conventional attack, its Achilles heel was its roof. It was so large that gliders could land on top of it and debark their contents. It had virtually no air defenses, and General Karl Student would exploit this mercilessly. Rather than engage the fort in a direct ground assault, Student devised a plan in which 80 German engineers would land on the roof and defang the fort from within. For weeks before the invasion, Student trained his raiders on an exact replica of the fort constructed in Germany, and by, by the time the invasion began, they knew the operation inside and out. As their brethren were descending onto the dikes of Holland, Student's troopers were landing on the roof of the Aben MIL. There they killed the anti-aircraft gunners and began tossing explosives down the barrels of the guns, rendering the fort useless. All the while, the fort's garrison of 1,000 men were trapped inside, paralyzed by fear and uncertainty. If they had attempted to storm the Germans on the roof, they certainly would have driven them off, but they manned their posts and the German engineers did their work. When the German columns arrived, the fort was virtually defenseless and surrendered on May 11th. As the paratroopers fell on Belgium and Holland, the tankers were firing up their engines to pour across the border. Army Group A, commanded by General Gerd von Rundstedt, was poised to invade Belgium and contained the spearhead unit, responsible for achieving the Schwerpunkt. Overall, it was led by von Kleist, but the brilliant General Heinz Guderian, father of the German Armored Corps, was placed in command of the most powerful element, the 19th Corps, consisting of three armored divisions. The 19th was given the pivotal task of breaking across the Meuse and taking Sedan. The going was slow at first. The French 1st Cavalry Corps halted the German advance on the first day along the Belgian front. The French heavy tanks were actually technologically superior to the German Panzer 1s and 2s. They had heavier armor and bigger guns, which meant that they could best any German in one-on-one -on -one duels. 
The Germans quickly adjusted their tactics, though. Within the first few days of the invasion, the Panzers were hunting in packs, rendering the heavier French tanks superior firepower null. Worse, the French had no air cover to speak of, allowing the Germans to once again unleash the fearsome Stukas, which could destroy French tanks with impunity. Events would only grow more grim for the French. Though they had some minor successes in the first hours of the invasion, the French army would soon begin to crumble. General Gamelin had made the fateful decision of choosing to defend most heavily in the north along his left flank. By doing so, he weakened the Ardennes frontier. Of course, this was exactly what the Germans had wanted the French to do, and it's not as if the French were completely blind to it. In a similar exercise to the one carried out by the Germans, in which Manstein had demonstrated that the Ardennes was penetrable, General Georges had demonstrated the same thing. Rather than draw tough lessons from this, though, General Gamelin chose not only to ignore it, but to suppress it. Of course, compounding these problems of leadership was the low state of readiness throughout the French army. I know I've harped on this already, but the French army was a hot mess in 1940. Even within the regular army, discipline was a joke. During the Phony War, the troops had grown accustomed to garrison duty and spent most of their time getting drunk. Men were even rationed liquor, especially before dangerous missions. Perhaps in an earlier era, when small unit tactics were non-existent, this could stiffen a man's resolve. But on a modern battlefield, where every man has to be acutely aware of the battlefield, this was a recipe for disaster. Worse, the five million reservists were hardly more than a rabble-rousing militia. Most of the men were either young and served their year reluctantly, or they were old men, veterans of the First World War. This was not a force that would hold out for long, not against the likes of Rommel and Guderian. In the north, Rommel was in command of the 7th Panzer Division, charged with crossing the Meuse at Dinant. Initially, the Belgian obstacles and defenses were effective, slowing the column's advance to a mere two miles an hour. Fortunately for Rommel, and the invaders at large, the Belgians began to withdraw to the Dial and Meuse rivers in accordance with General Gamelin's directive. Without any resistance, Rommel was able to resume his advance and proved his worth as a commander. He reached the Ort River on May 11, where he found the bridge had been blown. In a feat of military engineering, his engineers were able to span the bridge in two hours, and by nightfall of the 12th, the 7th Panzer Division had reached the Meuse where he once again found the bridge destroyed. Rather than lose the initiative and wait for engineers, he grabbed a rifle company and personally led them across the river in rubber boats to secure a bridgehead on the far side. What I would give to be able to see that operation, a light infantry company led by a flag officer across a river at night with the enemy waiting, the next day, his engineers constructed another pontoon, and the division continued its advance. It had only been two days, and already 15 Panzer Corps had achieved its initial objectives. With success in the north drawing in the French army, Heinz Guderian began his Ardennes offensive. This was the Schwerpunkt, the decisive point of the operation. Unlike the first hours of the invasion on the German right flank, where there was some resistance, Guderian's columns rolled over the frontier almost unopposed for two days. It wasn't until the 12th that he met his first sign of opposition, but even that they merely brushed aside. The real fighting wouldn't start until May 14th, when Guderian launched a massive aerial assault on Sedan, his army objective. At 7 a.m. on that spring morning, the Stukas left their airfields and unleashed their screeching terror on the town. For hours the dive bombers terrorized the ill-prepared French troops as Guderian's men prepared to cross the Meuse. 
Had a more experienced unit garrison the Ardennes front, perhaps Guderian would have been delayed, but Gamelin had foolishly stationed his worst divisions along the Ardennes. What could have been an easily defensible thicket of forest and narrow trails became a causeway for German armor. Once the Stukas had completed their deadly work, German infantry began their dogged crossing under withering French fire. The Germans suffered horrendous casualties during the crossing, but they secured the far bank. With the bridgehead now under control, the engineers were brought up and the crossings prepared for armor. This was a perilous moment for Guderian, though. Had the Allies been able to muster a counterattack, especially one with even a modicum of armor, the Germans likely would have been repulsed. The Allies were too disorganized and demoralized, though. They had suffered repeated defeats over the past four days and were attempting to consolidate their losses. Counterattack simply was not under consideration. Had French commanders been able to see the wisdom in punching back, it's unlikely the men would have followed. Panic is a disease in battle, and it plagued the Poilu. Men were not just retreating, but engaged in a full-on rout, screaming about German tanks pouring over the river, though in fact, not a single tank had yet crossed the Meuse. So infectious is panic that even General Georges succumbed to it in his headquarters, where he reportedly slumped at his desk, stricken with despair. The one arena in which the Allies did try to strike back was in the air, but here too they were driven off. Allied bombers attempted to halt the German advance by bombing the hastily constructed pontoon bridges, but hardly inflicted any damage at all. Worse, the Messerschmitts were soon aloft and pursuing the few Allied bombers conducting missions. Often Allied planes were flying against 100 German fighters to an aircraft. Against such hopeless odds, it's no wonder they suffered such high casualties. Once again, though, Poor tactical planning made matters worse. Where the Germans operated in swarms and waves, the Allied flyers attacked individually or else in small formations. Over half of the RAF's bomber force of 71 was destroyed, and a fifth of their 250 fighter aircraft never returned. The French lost an entire flight of 28 bombers in one sortie. Even had the Allies massed their forces, it may not have made a difference against the Luftwaffe's 800 available aircraft. The Allies were simply outgunned, and outfought. After crossing the Meuse, von Kleist had intended to halt and reorganize, but Guderian detested the idea of stopping the advance. He felt that to stop here would surrender the initiative and simply give the enemy time to rest and reorganize themselves. He sent two of his divisions forward and held one in reserve at Sedan, before confronting von Kleist and telling him he believed a halt foolhardy. After a lengthy argument, Von Kleist relented and permitted another 24 hours of offensive operations. In that time, Guderian's men punched a further 55 miles beyond the Meuse. By the morning of May 17th, he was once again ordered to stop his advance, though. The German high command simply could not believe the success they were having and were paranoid about an Allied counteroffensive that would exploit the Germans' thinly stretched lines. Once again, Guderian saw the folly in their thinking. He knew, being the man on the ground, that the Allies were in no shape to do anything but lick their wounds. Even when von Kleist came in person to Guderian's headquarters to chew him out for disobeying orders, Guderian drove on. He threatened to resign rather than obey such a foolhardy and ill-informed order. Unfortunately for the Allies, Guderian did not follow through on his threat. Instead, at the suggestion of General List, issued orders for a general reconnaissance to the entirety of his command. During their reconnaissance in force, the 19th Panzer Corps drove all the way to the Channel Coast and cleaved the Allied forces in two. Guderian had almost single-handedly won the battle for France right there. 
His determination and confidence in the power of concentrated armor had won the day and dealt a critical blow to the Allied forces. Yes, Mannheim deserves credit for devising Falgelb, the plan for the westward invasion, but Guderian executed it, and his tactical instincts won the day. The invasion likely would have succeeded even if he had not been at the Sverpunkt, but he likely accelerated it significantly. He prevented the Germans from having to launch successive offensives against French, British, and Belgian defenders, and instead achieved the objective of Falgelv in a week's time. In our next episode, we will continue to the Battle of Dunkirk, and then to the fall of France. Thanks for listening, and I promise this time you won't have to wait so long for the next installment.